Hey guys, this is The Real Estate Podcast and it's your host, Alex Kaufman. Now, before we dive into today's episode, I need you to do me a solid. Hit that subscribe button on your phone if you haven't done so already and share this episode with just one person. It's gonna help us get this information out to more people to learn about entrepreneurship and real estate. Thanks, now let's dive into today's episode. That's what they're aiming for, to to hit that decade, decade into time at well, so that they can be gobbled into something bigger, have a bigger vision, more diversified risk in terms of operations in different countries and states and cities and whatsoever. So um, that's kind of the the goal there. Uh, At the end of the day, um, never in our our lifetimes are we going to see something like this where you have a multi-billion dollar market that's just been illicit and now is moving into the, the, um, the, the legal spectrum. So looking forward to see what happens there. Narbe, what's up, man? Hey, man, how's it going? Long time. Yeah, I appreciate you coming back on. I always uh, really enjoy it, and uh, I love the the perspective that you have on the cannabis industry. And you're running an amazing business in Canopy Rivers, and uh, rip, just rip that, capital, rip capital. Rip, oh, dude, I knew that too. I knew that. Um, yeah, so you know, big changes. You know, it was rip Canopy Rivers now rip capital, and just did an amazing deal uh, from my perspective with uh, Scott's Miracle Grow. And had a new entity, uh, Hawthorne Collective, I believe, that you guys kind of structured something with. I, I, I'm really fascinated by these, like, what I call power moves. Because I know that, like, a lot has to be in the works. And there's a lot of conversations. And it takes a lot of time. Uh, but that's a big move. And, and I honestly feel like not a lot of people were talking about the way that they should be, from my perspective. Um, I'd love to hear, kind of, if, you, if you're cool with it, like, how that worked, how that went down, how long it took and like, and what you see there with uh, the potential with teaming up there. Yeah. So um, I'll I'll go all the way back to 2018 when I joined um, Rip Capital, formerly known as Canopy Rivers. And at the time, one of the pillars that uh, I remember telling the board um, was, was we were going to go after large corporates. And when we said we're going to go after them, it's our, our, our process was get in there and just educate them on how we see the cannabis industry playing out. So I was on your show before and walked through like the evolution of any cannabis um, market from cultivation to ancillary to CBG to pharma to mature market. Same kind of stuff. We just sat down and talked to them, but we reached out to dozens of, of, of large corporates out there. Um, just basically telling them, I know you're not looking at cannabis. I know we haven't done an investment yet, um, but let us just give you our view of what the industry looks like. We don't want to sell you anything. We don't want to take any money or anything like that. We just want to, um, tell you how we, we're seeing things and maybe in the future we get along. And, and so we, we talked to alcohol companies, tobacco companies, pharma companies. Um, Scots was one of those companies. Um, and and uh, at the time they were just viewing the market. They had the Hawthorne business, but they were deeply into it. Um, and we were wrapped up with Canopy Growth anyway, so we couldn't really do much uh, because we had a controlling shareholder on our cap table. Uh, once we uh, kind of cleaned up the canopy growth uh, situation and we, we, we closed the transaction in February of 2021, we were a bit of a free agent for a period of time. Um, and um, some of those conversations that we had early on started coming back to us with companies looking to, to get involved in what our future plan was or, tr- or just to understand what we were up to. We've always liked the Scots folks because um, there, there's, there's many, many groups in this industry where their view of what cannabis looks like is let's do a bunch of stuff and at federal legalization in the U S we're going to cash out and this thing's going to go to someone else's hand. And 
Um, it's, it's never been a focus for us because we've always played the long game here in the sense that you're, you're on the, this is such early days of a huge industry. Like it's a $31 billion industry right now. And it's like 90% illicit market around the world. Um, and, and just to think about how big this can get and how early it is, you want to stay in there and you want to create this long-term plan. So um, our view was always that. And then the Scots folks came in and they had a bang on view just like that of long-term, long-term. I just wanted to touch on something real quick because uh, I remember we talked about this, which is really cool. Uh, but it's that long-term view that like, you know, you're, you're a younger guy, you're in a good position. Like what, is, what does that look like 15, 20, 30 years from now? Um, or even five to 10, like you're, you're just going to be so far ahead of the game because uh, you have a real knowledge and insight in the space where people are just getting involved and they're like trying to catch up. So it just made me think of that, of like, you're, you're so well positioned yourself because uh, you're a true like cannabis fan. Uh, you believe in it and it is in a short term. So I just, I just wanted to throw that out there because uh, I think it's really special position that you're in. Yeah, and, and uh, the anecdote I like to use is Kobe Bryant, um, and, and he had this one interview where he was talking about his schedule, and he'd say the typical NBA player would wake up at 8 a.m., they'd go work out from 9 to 11, um, they'd rest, they'd go back and work out from 2 to 3, sorry, 2 to 4, 2 to 5, they'd come back home, have dinner, go to sleep early because they're going to start the day. And his, his schedule is a bit different because he would wake up at 4 a.m., start that first wake-up workout at 5, finish at 8, go to sleep, and then he'd have basically one or two more workouts per day than the, the normal NBA player. And he said those two workouts don't mean much on a single day or a single week. But when you add them to a 20-year career, there's a gap that you have that nobody can fill, nobody can come and capture. And that's the same thing. You're not, it's not just about me. It's about anybody in this industry right now investing in it, looking at it, being part of it. Like We are all part of something very, very early. And the more baskets we get or minutes we get or whatever the, the analogy is now 20 years from now we'll, we'll know all the players we know the pros and cons of every company we know what what politicians are saying what and they're going in and out weaving in and out of legalization or whatever it is um whatever the issues there are in 10 20 years from now um but uh, we're setting ourselves up for that so um it, it, it's it's the viewpoint of stop thinking about what the markets look like right now because it doesn't look good for anybody cannabis or not cannabis um, don't focus on what the short-term um, safe act is going to be, but focus on what the long, well, what can you do in the long-term to set yourself up to become one of the bigger companies that are out there. And that's just kind of how, how we proceed. That said, we are a public company. We do have to think about shareholders in the short, in the short term as well. So it, it is a mix of short-term and long-term strategies, but um, the, the priority on long-term strategy. Yeah. I love it, man. And even like you said, like for guys like me, like, it's not normal to, I feel like, be able to just get some CEOs on and, and build relationships, but I'm, I'm in a good time and a good era, and I'm lucky. Um, I can't go do this with, you know, tech companies or this or that. So it's fun to be in it and to, to have something that you believe in, right? Like, I, I'm a huge proponent of, of the flower and what it can do and all this stuff. So I get it. I see it, and it, it is a cool – and it's cool to hear it reiterated because it is tough. Like, you know, you think about these things – all or I do, like – you could be right so many times in life, but you could just be too early, you know, in, in anything people have done over history. And it's like, it's so obvious that this is going to happen, but it's like, and it's going to happen pretty quickly uh, with what's happening. And it, it seems, uh, but we are early and it, there are struggles with that. Even if you're so right, it's like, you got to just keep hanging on and keep adding value and pressing forward and, you know, having these conversations, just like you said. 
So uh, anyways, man, so you're, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to bring that up, but you're about yeah. to go into uh, kind of, I guess, the way that, that Scott's looks at things and you felt that it was a little bit more aligned with how you look at things with the long-term vision. Yeah, exactly. So, so that all culminated into our announcement that we made in August for the 150 million US uh, investment by Hawthorne Collective, which is one of the subs of Scott Milk Group. Um, the, the benefit of that transaction was it leveraged um, what, what we know in, in the cannabis domain or, or knowledge there, our inv investment expertise, and it married that with uh, Scott's Miracle Grow's expertise in operations, R&D, sales, uh, distribution, and the like. Like they have this Hawthorne business, the, um, the Hawthorne Garden Company, which has grown into the largest cannabis focused company um, in the world on a revenue basis. So they have about $1.2 to $1.3 billion run rate revenue within just the cannabis market itself, servicing cannabis companes. So they have deep relationships. They have, they've been in the ancillary market for six years. Um, and uh, they, they know the players, they know what works, what doesn't. They've seen good grows, they've seen bad grows. They have a technical um, expertise, a technical consultant group that goes in and helps growers out when they um, hit stumbling blocks. Like there's, there's way more strategic value to this than doing a deal with a tobacco company or doing a deal with a pharma company um, because it's such a silo of what you can get from them. Um, so our, our strategy is the same as what we previously said, which is we plan to acquire, um, invest in, launch and develop U.S. assets to create a multi-state operator. So now that we, have, we are cashed up, we have about $410 million Canadian of cash on hand, public stock. Um, we, we have, uh, the only debt we have in our books is the convertible debt that, um, Scott signed up for, which is an insanely low, um, interest rate. Uh, now, now we're just set up to go and execute on that, which is the hard part, Matt, because uh, the easy part is taking the money. The hard part is actually making, putting use to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, uh, I'm sure, you know, uh, many people do like you can, it's easy to go place that money and go, you can go wrong quickly. Uh, not, not that I think you will, but obviously that's a big risk. Like, especially in this space with the, the regulations and how things change um, just blows my mind uh, back to being early. You guys are sitting on a ton of cash. Uh, you actually have some really good strategic partners as far as like how you're going to view things and the stock's like super low and all, all of them are right. And it's just like a weird time, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you have like more cash than <laughs> the market cap or close to it. Uh, so it blows my mind, but I'm super excited because I, you know, I just try to, as a business owner, I'm like, fascinated by like what are they thinking what are they doing and then these the news comes out it's like oh that's that's brilliant that makes a lot of sense and i'm sure that they're gonna bring now you have another partner that's you know trying to probably facilitate all these other conversations for you guys um that has another angle to uh, attack the business you know or the market cannabis market in general they're the you know picks and shovels in some sense right of like the gold rush they're already doing it at a very high level and they're a huge company um, so I just can't wait to see what you guys do. And I'd imagine you're spending just a ton of your time looking where to place that capital. Right. And like, I'm, uh, I'm curious, like what kind of, uh, ways that you view the industry now with, I, it, it, does the way you view the industry, like shift constantly, like, or does it like, as far as markets are tough, the stock prices of all these companies are down. Does that change anything for you? Or do you just kind of stick with your, your vision, your long-term vision, regardless of all that stuff? I mean, of course you do look at the trends of what's taking shape, but you have to make your own um, educated uh, guesses uh, on, on where things are going to go. So 
I'll take you back to 2019. I remember it was the summer of 2019 and uh, I had just become CEO of the company and the, the, the licensed producers in Canada were on a downswing stock market stocks weren't doing well. The extractors were doing incredibly well. Like they were going up 10, 20% in, in a given month. Um, and I was getting a lot of pressure from the public saying that, Hey, why don't you, you could have invested in an extraction company. One of the big three that were out there in, in Canada. Why didn't you do that? Look at them. They're printing money. And we, we would take, like, we, we take that advice and we do watch all the, like, I, I personally do watch Twitter and I watch the, like, the Yahoo finance conversation board, just because I just want to see what sentiment is like and what people are feeling around the industry. And, and it helps me just be in their shoes of a shareholder that might've bought at a higher level or might've bought at a lower level. And now is thinking of selling at a higher amount or thinking of holding and how they perceive the entire industry to be. And I remember one of the, the, the like, we kept getting tips of saying, Hey, why don't these guys go into extraction? And when we did a deep dive in extraction, we're like, you know what, this, this industry is so commoditized. Like the equipment all comes from three manufacturers. Um, how you extract has a bit of an art form attached to it, but it's nothing that over a period of time can't be learned and can't be spread around. Right. So, so what, what is the secret sauce here? Is it relationships with customers? Not big deal because the lower the price becomes, the lowest cost manufacturer is going to win that customer out. There, there's, there's low switching costs. You don't sign up for a 10-year contract with one of the extraction companies. So we stepped away from that and we we're getting a lot of heat for it. And lo and behold, like that, that piece of the market trued up and came back to what we, what we thought was a normal level. Um, same thing happening in this situation. Everyone's focus is like, go and build, build, build in, in the US. It is the, the short-term strategy and it does make sense in certain markets, such as the limited market, limited license markets in the East. Um, however, the North Star is brands. And there's nothing like a brand that is that resonates with the consumer that's gonna that's gonna dictate how this cannabis industry evolves. So in Canada, the, the problem that the Canadian producers had was the government had allowed supply to be created before demand was even figured out. So everyone's guessing demand. They just built these huge facilities. The canopy shuts it down. Aurora shuts it down. We shut one of the ones that we were doing. Oxley, like you name it, everyone. As, as Kronos has shut one down or, or many of them down. Um, thousands of jobs have been lost because of it. Why is because we, we put the cart before the horse in Canada to say that let's just build it and then we'll, we'll find the supply after. US is coming online and Europe's coming online. I'll caveat that by saying COVID might have screwed stuff up and, and, and fucked things over a bit there. But, um, but at the end of the day, like the market wasn't going to grow fast enough to meet that supply. So when we look at the US market, same situation is kind of happening in the East Coast where you need a license to operate. Um, and if you have a license, you can cultivate and you can have your own dispensary in many of the vertically integrated markets. Now you own that, that product all through the entire retail chain so that you get a higher margin if you sell your own product versus you bring someone else's product in and you can make more money and you can, and, and you can manage costs. All of that is a short-term strategy. Over the long term, more licenses will be given out. The, the US market will get more competitive. You've seen this in dozens and dozens of industries. There, there's seldom any. In All right, guys, sorry for the technical difficulties, but we're going to figure this out. Narbe, you were giving a great explanation and it, it said over the long run, and then it just zipped out. So I don't know if you can get back on that train of thought or not. Yes. Yeah. So, so over the long run, um, brands are will prevail. Uh, and, and you see a lot, if you, if you look at Twitter or talk to butt tenders or retailers, they'll all tell you that customers are coming in and they're looking at THC percentage and the, the logo and they're picking up the product. 
Um, some connoisseurs understand the differences between uh, the terpenes and the entourage effect and the cosmetics of the bud. But for many consumers, the vast majority, um, weed is weed. They look at it the same way. Now, everyone uses cannabis for a certain reason, whether they, they know it or not. They might use it for relaxation. They want to watch TV. They want to get their mind out of the stresses of, of normal life. They might use it for a medical condition to take away pain, to take away uh, aches, um, to take away nausea. They might use it for um, other reasons whatsoever, other reasons at all, which is like creativeness. Like I want to, I want something like an upper, like a nice sativa that just gets me creative, makes me want to do my report or draw this picture or whatever that is, or, or finish my homework. Now. Um, Everyone has one of those, those, those things. The brands don't do a good job of telling you what each of them is for. Instead, they give you these strains, which it's hard to decipher what they are. Um, and they say, if you really want to understand what it is, you need to go do some homework on the entourage effect and the terpene levels. My view for, for all of that is like, you're, you're just creating friction for the consumer. So the more clicks you have on Amazon between the time where you want to buy something to when you check out, less likely it is for a consumer to go through all those clicks in order to come out. That's why they have those one click buttons of purchase. The same analogy can be applied to cannabis brands. The brands we're seeing coming out of California because it's so competitive are hyper-focused. So create a brand for sleep. Uh, and, and we know that Select is doing that. We know that um, Ciencia Labs is doing that. Create a brand for creativity. We know Pilgrim Soul is doing that. And many others are looking at that as well. Create a, a brand for pain relief. And, and all of these different things just speak to the consumer to say, this is what you're looking for cannabis for, and this is what I'm gonna give to you. And every single time you come to me, I'm gonna give you the same quality, the same effect, the same experience, the same on and off effect, and here's the package that you're gonna get. And that's what we're seeing on the West Coast, but it's ultra competitive. And that's, our, our vision is to create the same type of thing on the East Coast, where you're just not seeing that type of competition and not that consumer-focused, consumer-obsessed mentality that we, we wanna see in the cannabis industry. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, fascinated by because, I, and I don't follow it nearly as close as you do. But the one or two brands that stick out, they, I'm just like fascinated by the business approach that they've taken, and like they they've done a great job. And like it, it seems like very few people are even close to them on on branding. Like, and I and I haven't thought about it as far as branding for the specific use. That's pretty cool. So it could be one company, six different brands six different uses within different strains is that is that correct exactly exactly and, and you want to take that work off of a bud tender and just have it on the shelf where consumers can understand what it is they're exactly they're buying but of course you want to work with the bud tender to make that experience a bit better and get the recommendation um but the, the brand should speak for itself it shouldn't just be any other cool brand in the hipster packaging there, there should be a reason why the consumer buys that brand over any other brand all right, this is a little different of a turn uh, and maybe a little personal opinion, but like help, help correct me where I'm wrong here as well. Um, I look at the space and, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but like it's, it's very weird to me that uh, the things you're pointing to are coming from California. Like why are they not coming from Canada, right? Like it seems like they should be so far ahead. Like they have this better framework or maybe not. Maybe that's the issue. But like, why wouldn't this be happening in Canada first? They were the first people to do this. Like, what, am I missing it? What what maybe went wrong? What could be different? Like, I, I just seems like Canada should be able to do all this stuff at a at a much higher level, quicker, get more feedback, get more data, have more brands. But 
maybe maybe it's the regulations. I don't know. Am I wrong in that thinking? So I think you're right. They, they have the capabilities to do it. They know exactly what needs to get done. The one thing they can't get over is marketing regulations. So you cannot market a certain um, symptom that it's trying to solve or a certain feeling that you're supposed to get. You, you can't do that. You can't use certain color palettes. Um, and it basically drowns out any chance you have of creating a brand and resonating that brand with a certain use case. Um, and you can't do that. So you're drowned out. So what happens when you take away marketing is um, like, I'll give you a situation. You go into uh, CVS or Walgreens and you want to buy toothpaste. And you know that um, Crest is the number one brand that's out there. Um, and you've seen the commercials, doctor recommended, dentist recommended, all that stuff. Now, if you take that away and you go in and you don't know any of the brands whatsoever, what would you do? You would shop for price. You would shop for value, which is how much container am I getting for the, the, the certain price that I'm paying? You'd shop for um, what resonates with me from a color perspective. But you have no idea what any of the toothpaste do. And to you, all the toothpaste look the same. They might have little differences. This one has whitening. This one has something else. But they're all the same thing. The only way that you would develop that brand loyalty is by doing trial and error. So one day you go and you buy Crest. The next day you go and you buy Colgate. The next day you go and you buy Sensodyne. And then you'd say, all right, which one is it that like, I like the taste of, that I like the, the look of my teeth and, and whatsoever. That's the current situation in Canada where there, there are no cues for the consumer to understand what it is they're buying and why they're buying it for. Instead, it's a price war and buy on color and what brand looks cool to you. Um, and then you keep trying them until you find one. And then you stick to that for a longer period of time. Because of that scenario, it just takes a much longer period of time for brand loyalty to be developed. And that brand loyalty can be swayed away because like you're only buying one product at a certain point in time. And the next time you go to the shop, you have another chance to buy a product. There's no, there's no switching costs associated to switching between brands. So it's really hard to develop that loyalty. And it's really hard to speak to the consumer in the Canadian market. Yeah, it's very weird. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, man, I think, uh, I don't know the true history, but some of these companies are probably doing it underground and, you know, like, let's say like if they're in Texas, there's people, like you said, there's a massive illicit market and they're just doing it and they're building this brand. And, and then all of a sudden, maybe one day people know about them and they turn it on. And it's just so unfortunate that, uh, Canada can't be leading that charge in my opinion, because I live in America and you know, it's not like I pick America over Canada. I'm not like picking sides here, but I, I like to see the people that take the risk, especially leading this industry, pushing it forward, something I believe in. I'd, I'd like them to stay in that position, but it just, it's, just seems like it's all messed up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's unfortunate. I think when federal legalization in the U.S. happens, there's going to be a bit of a shift. There's going to be a bit of a reset on um, what is legal, like what, what kind of product you put on the shelves just to um, mitigate any spill over from one state to another. And then I think secondly, um, there, there might be a change in the way you can market the, and, 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 and brand the product as well. And that might help the Canadian producers because if they see the US market, huge market, 40% of any mature CPG industry making that type of change, that might sway them to move a certain way or they might stay conservative. But regardless of it, that catalyst of US legalization is going to have its pros and cons. And one of the pros is going to be on um, how, to, how it resonates with the consumer. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, that's great, man. Um, anything else you're seeing out there in the market that you, you find valuable or, or just interesting in general that you might want to touch on um, while we're here? 
no, I mean, um, our, so our, our strategy remains the same. We're, we're focused on the East Coast markets, limited license states, uh, trying to create the piping for um, with licensees where we can launch brands, we can license brands, we can uh, acquire brands and bring them over um, and, and just create a platform that we can just do tuck in acquisitions and just grow it out to become a, a leading US MSO. The, one of the reasons, and I, I didn't really mention this earlier, that we, we wanted to go with Scots versus just doing it all by ourselves is that there, we wanted to create something unique, like a unique story around why Riv Capital, or whatever it's going to be called after we do our transactions, um, is different from any other mid to large to small MSO. Um, and, and one of those is that relationship with Scots and what we can develop there. So we wanted to create a unique story around ourselves for our shareholders um, and, and for the long term uh, of the business and super happy with how it's beca what's become of it. I think right now is the best time for us to execute on our acquisition strategy because of what the public markets look like and, and um, what uh, exit opportunities exist for some of those small single state operators and multi-state operators. So looking forward to uh, wrapping things up on our end, uh, announcing something and getting back on with you and talking more about that. I love it, man. Well, thank you. Uh... And uh, I got, actually, I got one more question for you. Sure. So like back to the whole concept of uh, people kind of quick flip, you know, sell the business, get out. In, in your estimation or just opinion, how many people that are in the space now at your level or, you know, close to your level, not necessarily CEO, but like high up within these companies, how many of these people, what percentage are, are still around in five years? Is it like, like a high percentage or very, very low because they're selling out and moving on? Uh, I mean, it's hard to give you a percentage, but I'll say that a lot of people that I knew when I first joined the industry three years ago aren't here today. Um, and it's, it's just the roller coaster, the ups and downs of the cannabis industry do um, recycle executives. Many companies have upgraded their executives as well to get um, some CPG power into the business. Um, so, so you are, you are seeing kind of the changing of the guard over and over again, press release after press release of these companies. Um, that said, if, if there's a will, there's a way. Um, I mean, if you put ego aside and really believe in the, the cannabis industry, there's always going to be something for someone to do in this, in this high growth burgeoning industry. So it's all about keeping your, your eyes open. Um, in the long term, um, I think there's going to be different players altogether. Uh, at the end of the day, there's going to be a mass amount of consolidation. When you look at a, a mature market in tobacco, alcohol, beer, et cetera, there, there is, there's about a decade of um, crazy consolidation that takes place. And then you get your four or five giant companies that, that run the market. Um, so for, for a lot of the small and medium-sized players, that's what they're aiming for, like to, to hit that decade, decade and to time it well so that they can be gobbled into something bigger, have a bigger vision, more diversified risk in terms of operations in different countries and states and cities and whatsoever. So um, that, that's kind of the, the goal there. Uh, at the end of the day, um, never in our, in our lifetimes are we going to see something like this where you have a multi-billion dollar market that's just been illicit and now is moving into the, the, um, the, the legal spectrum. So looking forward to see what happens there. Yeah. And hopefully soon, man, I'm following some of these uh, legislations pretty closely and, uh, getting a uh, education in politics as well. Awesome. All right, man. I appreciate you, Narbe. Uh, Riv Capital, things are going to be changing fast with all that capital, I'm sure. So uh, keep hustling and thank you for tuning in again. Thanks for having me.